I mean, the book is for people who know they got to deal with money, but don't want to deal with markets and just don't want to think about it, don't want to read the Financial Times because they don't need to. Doing it doesn't improve outcomes, so don't do it. And there's a very simple path, couple hours a year, you can have a great portfolio. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here this week with a old friend, my money philosopher, Jonathan Dio. Uh, we actually, for those of you who don't know, collaborated on a, a podcast called Mindful Wealth. And uh, today, Jonathan is here on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast to tell us about his new book, Mindful Investing. Jonathan is the founder of Mindful Money, and he's a financial advisor, financial guru. What do you call yourself in the States these days? I'd say I'm a financial educator and a financial coach. I do a lot of group stuff. I have my individual you know, planning clients and those kind of things, but focus more on educating people that don't have access today. Great. And so Jonathan's first book, Mindful Money, was a major inspiration to me in writing uh, Mindful Landlord. And then after deciding that I absolutely had to speak to him, we decided to, to start a podcast together. And so I'm really excited to have you on the show today to have a conversation that's maybe more relevant to real estate investors. So Jonathan, just really quick for the members of our audience who don't know you, do you want to give us like the elevator pitch of who you are and what you do? Sure. I've been an advisor for 25 years. Two years ago, two and a half years ago, I lost my brother. And as we've talked about, it creates a lot of like, what's the meaning of life conversation in your own head. And I ended up pivoting and merging my financial planning firm into a larger firm so that I could focus on something that my brother Dave and I were going to do together. And that's bring uh, education and coaching to people that don't have access, people like our parents when we were young. And so that comes with writing and blogging and podcasting in the books. And, and so I'm just out there creating educational content. I've got some courses, you got a boot camp, got a membership, those kinds of things. Just helping people out in the space. I still do service some maybe 50 clients and I take care of them and I plan on taking care of them for as long as they want me to take care of them. Uh, I love doing that work, but I want to help a lot more people build wealth than I was helping before. Okay. So that then brings us to the book that you just released in September this year, Mindful Investing. How is it different from your previous book, Mindful Money? Tell us like, what's the you know, raison d'etre behind the book? What motivated you to write it? One of the things I talk about constantly all the time is we all operate in this soup. And the soup tells us that we have to be better at timing markets and selecting investments. And that is 100%, I swear, bullshit. It's, it's complete BS. The entire sort of financial world has lined up to say, you can pay attention to markets and you can do better. You pay attention to markets, you make the right kind of trades and decisions, and you can do better. And it's just wrong. Like all the academic research on the topic, whether it's Morningstar or Vanguard or you know different academic institutions, Chicago, you know UCLA, they all do research on this, and every single one of them says the same thing. It is doing the right things, saving enough, and being in markets, not what you own and not trading between things that actually create the value and create the benefit for you long term, not spending all this time reading the Financial Times, reading the headlines, figuring out what's going to happen next and trying to predict. You can't predict. No one can predict. There's no facts about the future. Stop trying. Mindful Money was about how do I line things up so that I'm making the decisions that build my happiness. And there was one 
chapter in Mindful Money where we talked about mindful investing. And it was just a very simplified chapter. And people, many people came back and said, Jonathan, we'd like a little bit more on this. And so mindful investing comes out of mindful money. It's just one sliver specifically about investing. How do you invest in the simplest possible way so that you get all the outcomes? I'm not trying to take away any of the returns or outcomes that people can have. I want them to get all those outcomes. I want them to get there with the least brain damage possible, with like the very least amount of time and input and energy spent possible. So these, I mean, the book is for people who know they got to deal with money, but don't want to deal with markets and just don't want to think about it, don't want to read the Financial Times because they don't need to. Doing it doesn't improve outcomes. So don't do it. And there's a very simple path, couple hours a year, you can have a great portfolio. Wow. That's really inspiring. <laughs> a couple of hours a year sounds great to me. I want to, you know, back up a little bit to what you said, you know, to the timing markets and like moving money around and some of these things were, you know, I think the image of, a, of the, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street or like stock traders or whatever does us a disservice because people think, you know, that investing is buying and selling stuff and trying to time the markets. And on a previous interview, I want to say almost two years ago, you made this great distinction between speculating and investing. And for me, like a big light bulb went on. And I wonder if you can just kind of speak to that quickly, because I think, you know, this is a real estate show, but I think, you know, even for real estate investors, this is definitely the case because the market is constantly shifting. And, you know, since COVID, things have been very volatile. Interest rates go up, interest rates go down. You know, our market in Canada is extremely tight, or it was at a certain point. Now, interest rates have gone up to the point where it's difficult to do any deals. And so, you know, there's kind of people sitting on the sidelines, biting their fingernails and being like, is this the time? Is this the time? And then analysis paralysis. So anyway, that was a big, a pre big preamble to say, can you maybe make that distinction for us between speculating and investing? Because I think that's really useful. I'm probably not as good at making that distinction in the real estate market, but in the stock market or in anything that you can buy and sell on a market, which would include things like meme stocks and cryptos and NFTs and, and all the really dumb stuff that people get, get sucked into. So anything that is like exciting today and terrifying tomorrow, people that are investing this are speculating. Even if it's just one company, one stock, like if I'm picking once or, or 10 stocks, that's a speculation. You don't, you're trying to guess what's going to happen next. This is the company. Apple is going to outperform all the other technology stocks. So I'm going to buy Apple. You don't have to do that to get you know, great long-term outcomes. The problem with doing that is you make the decision today, you have to make the decision again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. So speculation feeds on itself. The minute I make one speculation, I've got to return to speculation every day, verify, am I, am I holding the right stuff? Do I have to trade? Do I have to make something different? Do I have to do something different? Investing is like, I buy companies. Those companies are doing the things that I want companies to do. Part of the challenge is, you know, are you buying a stock? Are you buying a, a three or four digit ticker symbol that zigs and zags based on headlines and stuff? Or are you actually buying a company? And if you're buying a company, you don't have to think about it past that because the CEO, the board of directors, the executive team, all the employees, they work for you. If a company does really, really well and profits, well, that comes through to you. If a pandemic happens and you're Marriott and you got to shut, you got to close everything down for a bit, the company's job is to shepherd capital through that crisis. 
and come out the other side in a stronger position, you know, while the crisis is happening, maybe buy a few more hotels. So as a real estate investor, that's, that's actually a good example. Now with the cost of acquisition so high because of interest rates, it's probably a, a good time to be patient. It's probably a good time to not be deeply engaged because there will be deals. And when deals come, they'll be worth those interest rates. So you still make cash flow decisions in real estate, right? If, and you'll still have cash flow opportunities. It'll be based on the price because the interest rates are going to eat away some of that profit potential. But the key here is thinking long-term. You're not getting sucked into the fear, or the excitement of the day. Um, and I think that fits in both categories. One of the ways I talk about mindful investing is specifically in the stock market. It's a great tool for real estate investors. It's a great tool for entrepreneurs and business people because they're, in, they're going to engage in, be engaged in actively creating wealth in their real estate or actively creating wealth in their businesses that they're founding and running. But they're going to have spinoff. They're going to have cash that needs a place to go. And the best place for cash that needs a place to go is in passive portfolios. And the best kind of passive portfolios are the ones that are really, really broadly diversified of global great businesses in the United States and the world. That's all this is about. It's how do you do it in the most passive way possible to free you up for, if you're not a real estate investor or a business person, spend more time with your family. If you are a real estate or a business person, spend more time on your real estate, spend more time on, your, uh, on the business you're trying to create. Yeah. I mean, this really, there's, there's actually like a section in your book that I really like where you talk about the uh, six fundamental investing truths. I read the first line of that, which is, we will experience both fear and greed when we invest. Markets are inherently unpredictable. This unpredictability doesn't stop anyone from trying to predict them. <laughs> so how do we, you know, as people who wade into this, because real estate is illiquid, but the basic psychology behind it is the same because people panic. And when they panic, they either sell at the wrong time or they don't buy at the wrong time or they just don't buy in general. I mean, is there you know, a, good or a good or a bad time to buy real estate? You know, if over a 10-year period, there will be good times and bad times. But had you bought something 10 years ago, you'd be in a best, right. better position now than otherwise. And so what do we do? Like, what do we do with that, with these impulses to, you know, fear and greed, which are our lizard brain kind of taking over? Well, how do you deal with that? Honestly, there's two things. There's the daily practical practice. And I think it's important to have a daily practice. And, and I'm talking specifically about meditation. Maybe it's prayer, maybe it's meditation, maybe whatever it is. And I'm good with all of it. But if you have 10 minutes a day where you sit quietly and stare at a wall, watch your breath, you don't manage the emotions, but you note the emotions. Oh, there's a thought. And then come back to your breath. Oh, my knee hurts. That's okay. Come back to your breath. I'm only sitting here 10 minutes. There's no permanent damage. Just something comes up and then you bring it back to your breath. And that practice actually strengthens your ability to sit in the anxiety and the unknown when it comes. So it may be difficult to start that today amidst all the uncertainty. It's easy to start it when things are smooth. You sit down and no one does it then, right? But that's the easiest time to do it. And then you just maintain that. And that's the thing number one is you need to be able to be mindful which means you got to have a mindfulness practice. Thing number two, application. Every single real estate person I've ever spoken with, and I've spoken with many, I've done it myself for, for many, many, many years, it's, they all have a process that they follow to determine what's a good buy. For me, that becomes very mathematical. When the total cost, the purchase, the principal interest, taxes, insurance, maintenance, all that stuff, 
is paid by the rents and it's whatever the rents are, if you're renting farmland or, or commercial real estate or residential real estate or storage or whatever, it doesn't matter. When it works, it works. When you find the thing that's worth investing in, given the analysis that you put in place before you buy the thing, buy the thing. If it works, buy it. The environment matters not at all. Like if it works, buy it. If it doesn't work, then that's not your deal. You're looking for the deal that works. You have your equations, apply your equations, regardless of the environment, use your equations and, and make the purchases that make sense. And you're right, 10 years from now, this whole environment will have changed four or five times and you'll be in great shape. There's a, there's a guy who wrote a book that says, um, it's not about buy and hold, it's about buy and buy and buy and buy. That's how you build wealth. Whether it's stocks or real estate or whatever it is, you buy, you buy more. When you have more money, you buy more. It goes up in value. You take some money out, you buy more. You buy more, you buy more. And that's, you're managing something then. And that becomes wealth for you and your family. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really speaking well to maybe fear, right? Because I think, you know, in real estate, it's not exactly like, like stock investing because stock investing, because it's so liquid, like you can really, if you're trying to time the markets, you, like you can make big mistakes and like eat up all your gains or it's almost like gambling, right? Whereas with, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, right. not if you're doing it right. No, no, not if you're doing it right. But if you're doing it wrong, it's yeah. a little bit like the dopamine cycle of I get a little hit when I win and then I get really, really scared or really, really down when I lose. But in real estate, what ends up happening more is so there's the fear hurdle initially, right? Yep. Where like people either are very afraid to get in or even if you're in you're afraid to lose and so you don't make deals that maybe you should be making because some sort of unknown talks you out of it right so you know i think you're speaking to the mathematical aspect of like if this deal works and you have the resources do the deal yeah right like i think that speaks to fear and then have a mindfulness practice that kind of allows you to not talk yourself out of something that works according to the mathematical model that you've created but let's talk about greed because, you know, I think the fear thing is very clear for anybody who's either, you know, considering starting in real estate or who wants to grow. Like the fear is always present because there's such big dollar signs attached to the transactions we do that it's very easy to get talked out of that. It's not a thousand dollar stock. It's like hundreds of thousands of dollars. But like, how do you see people manage greed? Like what might you say about that aspect of it? Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. I guess this may, be, this may come as a surprise, but I actually don't experience, I work with very wealthy people. I actually don't experience the caricature of greed that we see all the time. I don't see that very much. I see fear and then I see this other side that's not greed, it's fear of missing out. So I, I see people who are afraid of loss and then things go well for a while. And then I see people who are afraid that they're not getting the same returns as those other people around them. And they know in the back of their heads, you know, I'm smarter than my brother-in-law. Why can't I do the same? He's doing, he's killing him. How come I don't have the same kind of return uh, profile or return benefits? 
And so there's that, there's that fear of missing out, not so much greed. I think people that have a lot of money get, get sort of a bad rap. I don't know. I don't know any of them. They're like, oh, just more and a mass and big piles. And I, I just, I don't know people like that. And I know people that have, have a lot, um, but they're trying to, it's about love for them. It's about, I'm producing something to take care of my family for next generation. I'm, I'm producing something to send my kids to college. I'm producing something that I can, I can one day do less, um, you know, be less active and maybe have more vacation time. Uh, um, they're, 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 they're building something um, that they can pass on and give to their communities, give back more. It's not about you know, more, 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 more. Um, I'm not saying those people don't exist. I'm just saying, I think they're probably not as many as we perceive, but there's people still are afraid of missing out. And that's something you got to be very careful of, especially in real estate. Like everyone can buy a share of Apple stock. In real estate, every deal is unique. And so I go back to, you have to be calm in yourself. You've got to trust your process, whatever that process is. So find great coaches to help you build a better process. You know, maybe improve that process over time, but have a process and apply that process to every deal. And you won't get every deal. You won't even see every deal. But in real estate, there's a lot of deals. You will get some deals. You'll get deals that matter to you and accrete wealth to you and your family. And just take those deals. Like that, you know, you don't have to compete on every deal. You don't, you can say no to 99% of deals and you can still be very, very successful as a real estate investor. Um, you, don't, you don't have to chase. There's always going to be the person on the podcast that you know did this incredible whatever, bought the land just when the city was expanding and there was an industrial production thing that happened and they got to sell it for 20 times what they bought it for two years later. That happens. That's luck. That's not genius. That's luck. And maybe somebody will get lucky, but you don't have to get lucky. You just follow the process. Follow the process. Take the emotion out of it, whether it's fear or fear of missing out. You got, you got to remove that emotion. It doesn't help. There was a lot there in your answer, Jonathan. And, um, you know, like I, one of the things that's just actually like a little light went on for me as you were talking about this business of greed, you know, and I think like we talk about greed as if it was actually a thing. But as you're talking, I'm thinking like, okay, well, what do we actually call greed? I mean, some of it is fear where people are need to build a bigger pile because now that they've reached some level of success, there needs to be more to cushion them against potential failure. And then there's this kind of like peer related fear of missing out because so and so did the best deal and somehow I have to um, match up to that. But this greed or there's there's also like competitiveness. You know, I think um, uh, I'm sure in, in in the financial world, it's the same thing. But in real estate, like I call it the um, more deals, more doors, more dollars, the three D's where, you know, people like to brag about how big their portfolio is. And, and I think that there's like an aspect of winning the bank account Olympics to it. Um, you know, as like a hierarchical metric of success. Um, but the actual, you know, greed of being like more, 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 more to feed my own personal thing. It's it's true that, you know what, in my career, I've actually never observed that, which like, yeah. isn't that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, so there, I, I read something the other day that I found, I found absolutely fascinating. And that is, um, we think about wealth in terms of Maslow's hierarchy. So the the money part of our success solves maybe the first two levels of Maslow's five level hierarchy. Maybe maybe touches the third level a little bit. But your happiness and the meaning of your life and whether once you get beyond that and now you're working on self-actualization and, and more of a spiritual money doesn't help there anymore. Money gives you zero benefit in those higher levels. So I think people might mistake like if I just had more money, 
I would feel self-actualized if I just had more. So I think people make a mistake in that space and they pursue the wrong thing. And we're human. We make mistakes. Nothing wrong with that, but they don't learn very quickly. And so I think that can come across as greed when you're pursuing more and more and more and more money to fulfill your competitive desire, your desire to be better than, your desire. You, and if you do that, that's where you always feel empty. You'll never have enough. You will always end up being unhappy and think less of yourself. And someone will always have more than you. And you'll always... So you have to, at some point in, this, in, the, in the financial Olympics, you have to, you have to come up with a, a transition point. Oh, I have enough. I have to work on meaning and purpose and self-actualization. And if you get there, you can have the money enough and you can get this other stuff that's really the, the well-being. Like I talk about better outcomes, financial outcomes, and greater well-being in the book. And that's the point is you don't well want enough financial, but the point is better well-being. The point is a better living, better life, more meaning, more purpose, more give back, more closeness with relationships, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's where the juice really is, but we have to have enough. And so we confuse that, especially in Western culture. We confuse it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm reminded of the interview we did with uh, Sonia Lubomirsky. Yep. Uh, you know where she was connection. talking about? Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. Connection and, and versus, you know, hedonic adjustment and the, and the fact that whatever thing you're doing, you know, one week, you're not, it's not going to give you that satisfaction. And yet us in Western culture, we spend 90% of our time on something that's only going to give you a 10% bump in your happiness. And like, isn't that worth thinking about? I hope more people think about it. I, yeah. You know, your lips to God's ears. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let's uh, let's come back to the book um, in terms of what's the strategy. So, you know, you alluded to it a little bit earlier. Of it's, it's actually very simple and, and you just need to develop a mindfulness practice and stick to your plan. Is that all there is to it or is there something else that people need to know? So there is a there is a chart in the, you know, I put these little things in the back of the book and there's a chart in the back of the book and it's on, I'm just trying to get to it here. It's on page... Uh, 239 in the back of the book, and I call it simplifying asset allocation. And after I, after we went through this whole process, I, I, I did this chart, I realized that, that this is the most valuable thing in the entire book. Um, and, and the reason is it describes the tool selection process. We all get bent out of shape in the tool selection process. And there's, there's sort of five columns in the chart. I'm going to go very quickly through them. On the far left, you have a single holding, and that single holding has all the companies, small, medium, large, growth, value, uh, uh, international emerging markets, domestic US, um, uh, all the different sectors. It has everything in one ticker symbol, all country world index, you know, um, global, the global equity portfolio, there's 15,000 companies. You can move over to the right one column and you can separate those into three. And you separate those into three holdings, which is international emerging markets, and domestic U.S. I'm talking about the U.S. investor here, and so you've made it. You've made it three times more complex by moving over one notch. You can maintain the same weightings. You can change those weightings any way you want. You have to rebalance between the three, so you've added complexity. You move over one more column to the right, and you can separate those three into growth and value each. So now you have six, and then you can separate those three into small, medium, and large. So now you have six times three. You have you have eighteen. And then you can actually go to the next column and actually say, I'm going to be active and pick individual securities in each one of those spaces. I think the problem is in the West and, and people that get bent out of shape about this is they're going too far to the right. They're creating too many decisions. The simplest thing you can do 
and I recommend this, and 80% of my wealth is in one of these. And they're, by the way, they're all listed in the back. I've got, I've got a, a, another appendix in the back that lists the actual holdings. So 80% of my wealth is in a single fund that has global all equity flavors to it. So I am not thinking about what I need to put money in when I have money, where I need to take money out of when I need money. It's just the one thing. I put money in, I take money out. I put money in, I take money out. Usually I'm putting more money in, putting more money in, putting more money in. And that's how I invest. And I have in there all the growth, all the value, all the small, many large companies, all the different sectors. I got technology, I got banking, I got industrials, I got everything. And I don't have to think about it. So any change from that is a decision that you make to overweight or underweight something. What the academics tell us is most times we get those decisions wrong. So if you veer one column to the right, you are betting on yourself to be better than markets. And you are going to ultimately, the longer you, the more time you spend doing it, you will ultimately lose that bet. Why do it that way? I don't understand. Well, we swim in that soup again. And the soup makes us believe we're going to be, we got better information. We don't. We can't. If we did, it'd be illegal. Like it's called insider trading for a reason. Like you, you're not supposed to be able to do it. And if you can, mm, mm, wrong, right? So I think that that chart in the back is probably the most valuable thing in the book. And I hope people shift from being on that right column, maybe one to the left, maybe two to the left, all the way to the left side. I think that's where the, that's, it's tremendously simple if you do it that way. Now, can I ask you to tie that to real estate or is that too much of a, sure. too much I mean, of a strategy? If, well, no, I, th I think so. the same thing exists in real estate, right? Um, I think the problem with real estate, no, no, it, it still exists in real estate. In, if I started a business, like I can create a lot of wealth by starting the business. Like if I started a coffee shop, like or I started a, a, a you know a financial planning firm. Like by by having a business, I create wealth by having the business. Real estate is a business. Whether you, wh whatever you're investing in, it's a business. Your your revenue is rents. Your your cost is the cost of acqui uh, acquiring and maintaining buildings or or land or whatever, right? So that's a business. Um, in real estate, you could just buy the Vanguard real estate index, in which case you would own industrial stuff and farmland and you'd own residential stuff and you'd own it all. You're not going to get the benefit of owning the business. You're just going to get the benefit of owning the real estate. So if you own the business, if you, if you buy a piece of property, you can make improvements to that piece of property. You, know, you can change the curb appeal. You can add a bedroom. You can you can, you can, you can, we, I've done this, right? You can raise the whole building and add another floor. You can do, you can do all kinds of stuff to add value, but that's running a business, right? It's a real estate business, but you're running a business. That's where the value comes from. You could also passively own real estate through, I'm not going to say private REITs. Those are there. I'm not going to suggest those, but through, a, you know, a very inexpensive, globally diversified real estate investment trust like Vanguard. Um, and so there is a passive way to invest in real estate, um, but you don't get the benefit of the business. You can do it both places. I don't think most people who listen to your show are, are interested in that kind of passive process. They're interested in the benefits of business ownership, which case, you know, they want to put in an extra effort. They want to get the return on that effort. They want to, they want to build wealth in that effort. And that's fine. That's great. It's a business and that's, it's not passive. Like it's, you got to do the work to make that happen. Um, and so it's a great way to go. You could start a coffee shop too and have the same kind of concept. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Jen, uh, Jonathan, thank you. Like, I think, um, you know, always, uh, always good to, to to have some little aha moments because I think 
you know, people talk about what we in the real estate coaching space, right? Like there's a lot of this thing of, oh, you know, passive income um, and like, you know, build wealth through passive income. You'll never work another day in your life. Like for somebody who is a real estate professional who spends like most of my working life managing what is basically a business. I mean, sure, it's a business that grows maybe in a different way than it would if, if you were cranking out the sausage yourself, because not only do you have like, you know, you have the market increasing. So that kind of carries you up in a way that is not tied necessarily to your own elbow grease, but the daily operating and the covering expenses with your rents, that is definitely a business. And, you know, I think um, for people who want to say that, you know, buy a building, it's going to be passive income. That's absolutely not true. And that there's definitely like business practices to running a portfolio. It, it is a business that's, that's active. Then, of course, that asset exists in a market that on a 10-year timescale is upwardly increasing. And so in that sense, there is like, you know, a passive investment income over a long time. But, but for sure, operating real estate is not, not passive income. Just, just accounting alone. Like I, I have clients that have seven or eight buildings and, and the time they spend managing which building is producing what amount of revenue. And then this building is vacant because I got to do a bunch of work to us. So I got to get money from these other buildings and move it over to this account. And then we got we to watch that and account for that and track, track that for tax purposes. And, and all in the partners in this building and, and they got to trade across and it changes the percentage of ownership. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely work. Um, no question about it. Um, and you, don't have to do it, but you get the benefit of that work. That yeah. benefit, the work is a benefit. It has a benefit. That's yeah. Tied. Yeah. Yeah. Which is different from owning, uh, you know, a REIT or or a, like a, a fund that invests in real estate. But so, Jonathan, we're unfortunately running out of time. That half hour absolutely flew by. Is there anything else we should know about the book, about what you do? Any parting words that you want to give to our audience before we sign off? All I'm trying to do in this part of my life, you know, I'm trying to, I'm climbing that second mountain. I'm trying to provide value to people that, that I'm never necessarily going to meet. Um, I, I, I want, so the books of another book I'm writing, I'm working on mindful retirement, just come subscribe to the newsletter, uh, and, and stay in touch because, uh, I just want to help people out at this point. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty well set. And now this is like, it's my top of my Maslow's hierarchy is to, is to provide value for other people. Mm -hmm. And so what's the best way for people to connect with what you do? Uh, I'd subscribe to the Mindful Money newsletter. Go to mindful.money and subscribe to the newsletter. So we will drop those links uh, in the show notes. Jonathan, thank you for sharing this half hour with me. Um, it's been fun reconnecting after you know we took a little bit of a break from the other podcast. Always great having you on the show. Um, guys, if you're listening, if you found this insightful, uh, you know, constructive, go ahead and check out Jonathan's new book, Mindful Investing. And uh, see you again next week. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.